it's a Hollywood story unlike any that I know of. It's a Hollywood story about the loser. Not about the sociopathic loser and the player who kills the, the, the producer. Not about like the has-been in Sunset Boulevard. It's about a totally unsung kind of Hollywood loser, which is the person who comes out here, swings, misses, and by all evidence should just fade into obscurity and go back to wherever, whatever hole they crawled out of. But it actually takes that person's dreams seriously. And that's the kind of Hollywood story that I can't really think of another example of. Welcome to the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that veer off topic. I'm Rolf Potts, travel writer, author, teacher, and now podcaster. Today I talk with author and journalist Tom Bissell, who co-wrote The Disaster Artist, which was adapted into a movie that will debut in theaters later this week. The movie version is directed by James Franco, who also plays the lead role in a cast that includes Alison Brie, Seth Rogen, Zac Efron, and others. Now, Tom Bissell's writing career goes beyond the disaster artist, of course. I first knew him as a travel writer and an author of several books, including a collection of international short stories called God Lives in St. Petersburg, one story of which formed the basis for a 2012 movie called The Loneliest Planet. He's also written a number of travel-themed books, as well as a book about video games. His day job at the moment actually is writing scripts for video games. And our conversation covers a lot of ground. We actually start by talking about Tom's lifelong affinity for thrash metal bands like Metallica and Megadeth. And we reflect on how the aggression of thrash metal appeals to men in a way that's similar to the aggression you see in video games and gangster rap. Uh, as an aside here, we talk about a book I wrote about gangster rap in 2016 for Bloomsbury's 33 and a Third series of short books about classic music albums. I wrote specifically about the Ghetto Boys' self-titled 1990 album, which was produced by hip-hop guru Rick Rubin and was way more extreme and way more unsettling than any thrash metal or hardcore punk album that came out around the same time. Now, I didn't do much to promote this book last year in part because it falls out of my usual wheelhouse and I kind of wanted the book to speak for itself. And while technically it's a work of music criticism, it approaches the genre very much through the lens of geography with a sensibility uh, close to travel writing, focusing on a single neighborhood of inner city Houston. Uh, more about that book can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. Anyhow, in addition to thrash metal and gangster rap and video games, my interview with Tom talks about our culture's obsession with authenticity and why that's a bogus concept at heart. I'm actually fascinated with the ways people fetishize authenticity, and I apologize for those moments in the interview where I monopolized the conversation a bit too much on that topic. Uh, Tom also plays banjo at the end of his interview, so this episode contains multitudes. Anyhow, here's Tom himself, interviewed late last month on the balcony of his home in Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles. We were talking a second ago, I threw out some possible topics to talk about, uh, and because you had talked about them all, you've written about them all at book length, um, you acted like uh, you, you, you've You've done such a deep dive in all of those things that you've completely uh, dried up your interest in those topics. So, yeah, I mean, is that true? Is that a good paraphrase of what... Of what uh... So you said, uh, the, what, what I like to do in this podcast is deviate, uh, like oddball subjects that, that the podcastee is interested in. And I began thinking, what am I interested in? And, I, and I, I got caught into an existential shame spiral a little bit because I started thinking, well, what am I interested in that I had not already written as you say, at book length, a book length uh, address of. And I got really self-conscious and sort of freaked out a little bit because everything that I've gotten so consumed by, I've managed through guile and stupidity to actually convince someone to pay me to write a book about. So I, I, I told you that I was worried that I, I've actually sucked dry vampirically all of the subjects that, that that I've been interested in. Well, maybe you're the platonic ideal of the of the concept of the show and that every time you have a bizarre tangential interest, you dive so deep that you write a book about it. Um, and then you scratch the edge and you can move on. So like yeah. if everybody, I wouldn't have to have this podcast if everybody did what you did <laughs> because because they you dive deep, you go on a book tour, everybody interviews you on that on that subject and, and then you've, you've done it full circle. One thing that occurs to me that we could start with. I, I do want to talk about the disaster artist because this is one of the few um, 
interviews of season one that will actually coincide with anything in the real world. And with, I think with a new with a newsworthy item, right? With a with a calendar specific uh, item, and I believe that's like early December if mm -hmm. that comes out. Uh, and also because I, I was really uh, just tickled reading the book, I really enjoyed it, and I know it was co-written, but I felt a lot of Tom Bissell voice in there, and I want to talk a little bit about that process. But jumping way back, I read some early interviews with you where you were sort of described uh, by your mentors as sort of a mulleted metalhead back in the day. And is it true that you at one point were signed on to do um, a book about Metallica's Master of Puppets, my 33 and a Third? My favorite album, yeah. Well, let's, talk, let's start by talking about that because you have not scratched that itch apparently, or, or maybe it, was, true. it wasn't itchy enough. Um, so let's rewind from the Laurel Canyon area with the guy who's drilling something into the side of the hill to, uh, to Upper Peninsula, Michigan, Tom Bissell, yeah. with the mullet, um, Metallica. How did, is Master of Puppets your first Metallica album? No, no, okay. Kill Em All was my first Metallica okay. album. It was my, Master of Puppets was mine, so I was late. I sort of had a preppier, preppier mullet back in the day. I arrived late, you know, not, I mean, it wasn't like I arrived in the Black Album when, when most people did. When losers, scumbags, and charlatans arrived at Metallica. When, when, when the posers uh, <laughs> jumped the Metallica bandwagon. Uh, so so tell tell us like <clears throat> I mean you wrote a book about the apostles. You just got back. Uh, you, you wrote it. You didn't just get back, but you wrote about going with these evangelicals to Israel. So evangelicals tell their personal testimony uh, of conversion to faith. What was your conversion to Metallica? What's your what's your origin story with that? So I was in sixth grade, and I think the older brother of a friend had Metallica's Kill 'Em All. And I remember the, the album cover, which is a black-bordered sort of white light table-like image with a hand reaching toward a mallet that has blood pooled around it. And I remember looking at that album cover. And heavy metal, thrash metal album covers in the 80s in particular were always just incredibly lurid and interesting. And, and there was a wa Wasn't there a Wasp album where a guy had like a radial saw for a crotch? Yeah, yeah, and there was a trussed-up <laughs> woman. Yeah, yeah. No, it's crazy. It was like... It was like Dungeons and Dragons meets hardcore S&M pornography, and um, and I loved. I didn't play Dungeons and Dragons because I didn't have anyone to play with me, but I, I read all the books, so I was a very weird D and D fan. And that I, I've literally to this day I've never played a game of Dungeons and Dragons, but I owned all the books and read them all, and was interested in the imagery and and, and the idea of playing it. But well, as but, a quick uh, aside, most people who did at age twelve weren't doing it right. You know, right, they course. had the books, but they didn't like reading books. Yeah. So like, like all of my experiences with Dungeons and Dragons at, at, at that age was just like sort of bullshit talking. Nobody liked to lose. Yeah, um, yeah totally. So when, so when I watch, you know, Stranger Things or Freaks and Geeks and watching these kids sort of playing it in an orthodox way, I don't know if it was just my jock background or whatever, but what I just, it was just basically bullshit storytelling. You didn't so, have a DM. You didn't have a responsible DM. We didn't have a responsible DM. No, it was it was very self. And and then our attention spans were very very small. <laughs> yeah. So and, and I say that I I just feel like sixty percent of all twelve year old boys who played Dungeons and Dragons in nineteen eighty three was were that. You know? Yeah, they had no fucking idea what they were doing. So I think I may have played one or two games, but but that would and I. I and I bring this up to, to, to address my interest in speed and thrash metal. Was it something about that world dovetailed very nicely into the world of, of, of thrash metal? So uh, my friend's brother had Kill 'Em All, and I remember we just put it on a old, you know, he had the record, not the tape. We put it on, we listened to it, and just something about that music got really deep under my skin. and. When I, that was, I was probably 15, 14 or 15, when I turned 16 and I had my first job, the very first thing I bought with my money was uh, Ride the Lightning CD. Was, Which is the second album. Kill, second. Kill Em All is the first one. Yeah. So Master of Puppets was out by then, but, uh, or it, maybe it had just come out, but I bought Ride the Lightning. And um, that whole album, uh, I, I just must have almost wiped clean the uh, the data on that disc. I listened to it so many times. So uh, I remember distinctly hearing Cliff Burton's The Basis of Metallica's Death on MTV when it was announced because uh, I probably hadn't had Master of Puppets that long and, I, and that was and is my favorite 
album of all time. Master of Puppets. Yeah. And um, I remembered, you know, I was really young. I, re I remember vividly when John Lennon was, his, his death was announced on the evening news. I remember I was playing with Lincoln Logs. Um, and I remember just as vividly, I was at Kim Bushy's house. She was this girl that I had a crush on, and I was perpetually the guy that she would talk to on the phone late at night, but she would go for the much, you know, um, she would go for the bad boys behind my back, and I was constantly stuck in this situation of where privately she was very nice to me, but publicly she was very mean to me. It was a terrible situation for a young kid to... to it's very a trope, confused. though, I think. It is a trope. It's a total yeah. trope. Among high school... Notice I did not say the, the phrase friend zone, which I detest and think is a absolutely intellectually bogus framework to, to think about relations between men and women, or men and men, or women and women for that matter. But I was at her house, uh, and the announcement that Cliff Burton had been killed uh, on a, in a bus accident in Scandinavia was announced. And I remember just like, whatever we were doing, I remember just stopping and putting my face in my hands and just getting, being really upset. Like worse than I was when John Lennon died. Of course, I was only six then, but um, I remember being shocked by that. And isn't it weird that Cliff Burton and John Lennon's deaths were separated only by six years? Hmm. Isn't that hard to... Because they're generally, generationally, they're different bands. Yes, and yeah. six years ago from right now was 2011. Right. Think about that. Like, I'm trying to think of prominent musical deaths of 2011. Certainly there were some. I'm sure there were some. So, um, Metallica's always just sort of uh, really been the one musical mainstay of my life, other than the Beatles. Have you continued to be current with them, or is there an album I reject which? everything. Uh, the Black Album is disgusting. Um, the one, the album... That where I, st I I don't even own any of those albums. Black I don't after I do, after Master after Puppets? Injustice for All. Okay, uh, the Black Album to me was such a slap in the face to everything they stood for that I because it's hard rock. It's not thrash metal. Gotcha. It's not melodic. The songs aren't all eight and a half minutes long. Right. They're not about Egyptian plague. <laughs> you know, they're they're just about much. I don't know. I just. There's a few songs of that era that, I, that I'm okay with, but just conceptually, I think the band went off the rails. I don't begin to get interested again until St. Anger, which is their terrible album they made during the making of Some Kind of Monster, which is one of the best rock docs ever made. And not and, and in, very humanizing. Oh, amazingly humanizing. Yeah. And, uh, and I do think Death Magnetic is their second best album after Master of Puppets. Which was Rick Rubin produced? Am I right on that? Uh, yes, that's and where they went back to went back to eight minute songs. Yeah, and went back to eight minute songs. And it it is like I don't think a harder album by fifty year olds has ever been made. Hmm. There are songs on that album that just melt your 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 brain. So would you say they they went back to thrash? They went back to thrash. Have you listened to The Exploited by chance? No. Okay, it's like a Scottish punk band um, that I discovered by accident, like during the election of twenty fourteen. Uh, and like I was, I'm, I live in Kansas, and so I was watching their video on YouTube, and I was, and then after a Sam Brownback video, like the Republican Party had put so much money into those elections that I was watching, like this really hardcore Scottish punk rock video after a Sam Brownback for governor <laughs> ad. Um, but they're they're old, so I mean they're sort of an '80s band that continued to make really heavy mu music yeah. uh, in the 2000s. Um, okay, so so really. You're a four-album Metallica fan? You're core four? No, no, no. I Kill Them All, Ride the Lightning, Master Puppets, Injustice for All. Oh, and uh, Saint Anger. Saint Anger, Death okay. Magnetic, and uh, Program to Self-Destruct. The last one, I think, is, is, okay. is, is strong. It's not one of their best, but it's, it's definitely listen, listenable to. So um, why? I don't want to make the whole interview about Metallica, because there's probably like... <laughs> I like, look, I, there's a lot, I love Anthrax, I love Megadeth, I like Testament. Uh, there's all sorts of thrash metal. Well, that's a very specific... Era 80s thrash metal, it's yeah. like the big three. Like, um, you didn't say Slayer is where does Slayer fit into that? Slayer, I, I admire Slayer to me is the James Joyce of thrash metal. Like, I admire it, I respect it, I recognize its centrality. But there's something here's the thing Slayer is not, it's not that it's too hard, it doesn't have any joy, and like I could never go full blown into uh, the joylessness of full on death metal, thrash metal. I like thrash metal that had some uh, funk in it, for lack of a better word. Like one of my favorites 
thrash metal songs of all time is a Megadeth's Wake Up Dead, which I think is like three minutes and 50 seconds of just, and it's an incredible thrash song. It's got like four complete uh, change-ups in it. Like it's basically three different mini songs that are crammed into one little tiny song. And so here's my other musical passion is bluegrass banjo music. I play banjo badly. And, okay. if, and if you can tempt me, I can bring my banjo out and, and demonstrate that. But the, that, you, could, you could drown out the drilling. <laughs> so the two forms of music I like more than any are bluegrass banjo music and thrash metal. And I, I leave this to you to decipher. But these are two forms of music that are profoundly literal, are performed by people that are technically geniuses, but thematically are morons. And it's this incredibly demanding, virtuosic music that is about subject matter that is almost beneath contempt. Well, I, I'm going back to Slayer. My knowledge of these bands isn't that broad, but um, Angel of Death, yeah. the song, lyrically sounds like a book report about the Joseph it's a, Mengele. It's all, yeah, it's about it's about Mengele and the SS. Yeah. But but it's just it's like a 12 year old level of yes, of insight. It is. It's just sort of a description of what he did. Well, let's think about some great metal songs. Wake Up Dead by Megadeth is about waking up dead. Indians by Anthrax is about Indians. <laughs> okay. um, uh, creeping Death by Metallica is literally about a form of creeping death, <laughs> you know, creeping across ancient Egypt. It's like, whatever the title of the song is, you could be reasonably sure that the lyrics will be exactly about what the title is. And there's something about that cross-eyed literalness of that music that I find really endearing and, and sort of, um, you know, insultingly dumb at the same time. But yet this was all pre-Wikipedia, so where, where was the literalist, like if a plague in Egypt, you know, like Dr. Joseph Mengele, where do you think they were getting their information? Were they going to the library? I think they were reading books, yeah, like For Whom the Bell Tolls, it's, that's, that's all about Robert Jordan and, and the Hemingway novel. And, Actually, uh, okay, so, so the Metallica song is also a book report. The Metallica song is about the last moments of Robert Jordan putting the bombs at the Segova Bridge and before he blows himself up. Well, don't they also have a song uh, about um, uh, Johnny Got His Gun, right? Yeah, the, the Dalton Trumbo book, yeah, yeah. And the one, their first, yeah, the first one. song they made a, the first MTV a, a video, video yeah. about. And we said we'd have nothing uh, obscure knowledge of mine to talk about. That's You've true. opened my encyclopedic knowledge of 80s-era uh, speed metal. One, you're going to have to write a book about this so that you can no longer <laughs> be interested. So how did you hear about that I was going to write a book about Master of Puppets? Well, I'm, when I discovered the concept of 33 and a Third at the uh, Pop Culture Association, American Cultural Association Conference... Well, you wrote, let's just stop tape for a minute, you wrote one of the best books in that whole series about the Ghetto Boys. Oh, wow. So Thank you. I've read... You know, a dozen of those books, and okay. it's, it is one of my two or three favorites. Thanks. I get no feedback on that. Like, I think there's 500 people in America who would be interested in that book. <laughs> uh, and the Ghetto Boys were so incredibly offensive that it would even it would be hard to even like have a podcast interview about this because you would have to stop and acknowledge just how deeply misogynistic the lyrics. They were. scared me away. Yes, that was the first hip hop group that actually scared me away. I think, and one of my points in the book. Not a huge point, but is that at a time when punk rock didn't scare me, um, the Ghetto Boys were yeah. profoundly disturbing and unnerving and raw. And yeah, there, there was something visceral uh, that did not exist in punk rock. And so I think that's why Rick Rubin produced them. That's why you maybe, I presume, why you listen to them. Oh, no, yeah. I, 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 yeah, um, I listened to them a lot, but there was something about them that was sat. Well, I mean, Public Enemy and NWA had this undercurrent of recognizable political content. The Ghetto Boys, all the politics was just stripped out of it. So all you were left was the pathology of the urban black underclass, the rage and the anger with none of the like socio-political contextualizing that the other bands did. So you were just left with something that was just so nihilistic, it terrified you. And maybe this is the same problem I have with Slayer. Um, Both have a Rick Rubin connection. Yeah. And Slayer had, like when Metallica did songs about like uh, uh, disposable heroes was like just a typically moronically stupid anti-war thrash metal song. Um, but like Angel of Death was, it, it, the fact that you can make a song that leaves you unclear as to where 
the musicians stand on the issue of Joseph Mengele's experimentation, I think that's what made me. Have, have you read the 33 and a third about uh, Slayer's? Uh, no, I haven't read that one. Um, it's it's weird. Like uh, the singer is sort of still Catholic. Tom Araya. Yeah. Oh no, he's always been a Catholic. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, so it's been so long since I've read that book, uh, Rain and Blood, that uh, I, I I'm not going to properly quote it. But just the dynamic, like the fear I felt at hearing Slayer for the first time in high school doesn't correspond to who Slayer is. Right. But of course, the fear that you feel when you listen to the Ghetto Boys doesn't correspond either when you know who the Ghetto Boys were. Uh, and one thing that I explored in that book was the psychogeography of the Ghetto Boys, that one of the reasons why they were so raw is that nobody wanted, to, nobody in the hip-hop community cared about a band from Houston, right? So they sort of played, the, the, um, the guy who started Rap-A-Lot Records, James Smith, said, we're gonna get country. And by that meant he, he meant old school, black vernacular, yep. um, old bordello raunch, as well as um, uh, pulp fiction slasher movie gore, you know? And, and I think that's where their seeming unpoliticalness comes from, right? Because the East Coast had all these, under the influence of Chuck D, right? They had this the whole sort of, I don't know, this Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael kind of like, tradition that they were latching onto was a, a real consciousness uh but but not like a um afrocentric co consciousness um it was more of a revolutionary yeah I mean, yeah 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 afrocentrism and, and revolutionary um black politics dovetail but um there was something um intentionally militant about public enemy you know down to their visuals and i cannot think of two people that these listeners would rather hear talk about these issues than you and me. <laughs> so. Well, that's the thing is that we, we found our deviation, but the number of people in my audience pool, you know, who have who have an engaged interest in uh, the Ghetto Boys and Slayer and Megadeth is pretty small. But, but that's the joy of this. But these are people that like we grew up in this environment, right? And I also like super violent video games. I mean, there's all sorts of things that I like that are weird, and they grew out of this very strange time to grow up. It turns out, very strange time, which was the '80s and '90s. Um, but we were talking about Metallica and well, you were talking about joy, joy, and, uh, joy yes. in metal and, and Slayer. And actually there's, um, yeah, I don't think we can go down the, the ghetto boys, uh, uh, rabbit hole because that's almost too much at once. We can go back to it, but, um, Slayer w fell flat for you because there was a joylessness to it. Mm -hmm. So like, we're, like master of puppets, which is probably the Metallica album I know the best. Which, where, where do you identify joy, for example? So there's, there's no joy in Master of Puppets, but there's also no distinct lack of joy. And I guess okay. there was no, there's no rejection of joy. Slayer seems to explicitly reject the possibility of joy. Uh, I think Metallica's Master of Puppets in particular is just a world in which joy simply hasn't yet occurred. I don't think they foreclose the possibility of joy. Slayer's music seems to me to foreclose the possibility of any kind of human happiness, any kind of joy, any kind of transfiguration. It is, a, and, and, and to, you know, as you said, Tom Araya remains a very fervent Catholic. No, but there's something about um, that the world has responded to and will always respond to. Uh, I'm reading, I'm rereading a book right now called Masters of Doom, which is about the creation of the video game Doom okay. in the early 90s. And these are, again, young men who are pissed off, angry, and they're making pissed off, angry art that is, feels vital and people respond to, and it's like morally indefensible, but it's aesthetically really interesting. And I just watched the uh, Defiant Ones, the Jimmy Iovine, Dr. Dre documentary that HBO did, which is an astonishing movie. And you realize that Fuck the Police, the, the seminal NWA song, grew out of an incident where Dre, Easy, and I think Cube were shooting paintball guns at cars on the freeway. And they got pulled over by the cops, and the cops were really rough on them. And they came back to the studio all pissed off. And DJ Yella asks them, well, what happened? And they're like, oh, the fucking cops you know, are giving us a hard time. He's like, well, what did you do? They're like, well, we were just shooting you know, paintball guns at cars on the freeway. And Yella's like, what are you, <laughs> of course they were going to stop here. Are you fucking stupid? That's You're lucky funny. you didn't get shot, you know? And so, you know, the seminal song of police abuse and overreach. Uh, grew out wow. of an incident where they were like seriously doing something they were lucky they were not shot for, for 
for doing. So imagine how easily a misunderstanding could have grown out of that situation. Well, it's interesting that in Straight Outta Compton, the movie, the pretext was they had just gotten hamburgers and they were right. standing outside the studio in a neighborhood that was not their own. Yeah. And so it's almost, and unfortunately, I think the way, there's a real oversimplification, this is another tangent, of the way we talk about police um, local interactions these days. And it, and it veers narrative, you know, and sometimes uh, we, we attach ourselves to the hamburger version of the story instead of the, the, the paint gun version <laughs> of the story. You can explore that dynamic through a paintball incident, you don't have to have a hamburger, a completely innocuous right. incident. You can, right. because the point is, is that white guys are jackasses and are pulled over by the police all the time and are not always treated in the same way that the way black guys are. Because paintball, that's a jackass thing to do. But yeah, it's interesting how the narrativeness, that for whatever reason they didn't comfortable leaving it paint guns in the movie because it's, you can just move through it faster if it's hamburgers. Right. But in a way, the whole point of trying to push back against police overreach isn't the hamburger story part, but the fact that the paint gun, that young guys being jackasses should not be a death sentence, right? Um, okay, so you were talking, you brought up this documentary. No, just talking about- Oh, the, the way young men are Young men, violent art, disgusting art, but compelling art. And I feel like that is something about the art of young men in particular. I don't think young women are nearly as pissed off and angry, and a young men's anger is very rarely justified. I don't think it's ever really a reflection of an accurate picture of how they perceive, of how reality is. It's just how they perceive it. There's just something about that dynamic that I was attracted to and remain attracted to. I'm now 43 years old, and I realize I'm way beyond angry young man territory. And watching that movie, you realize Dre's moved into his 50s and has become like a completely different person where he's not angry. He's like a straight up businessman and a brilliant man and one of the maybe the greatest producer at what the kind of thing he does of anyone who's ever lived. It's very probably very hard to consider yourself to be someone who is literally the best at the thing you do of anyone who's ever lived. But I think he, he's one of the few people that can claim that. And he's, you know, his jets have sort of cooled and his music has become less vital, less. Hmm. Well, hip hop is an old genre now. Yeah. You know, that if you, you, if you peg it, you know, if we just round things off and say 1977, you know, I guess the first. Um, it's as old as I am. Yeah. I'm yeah. a little bit older than hip hop. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it was still sort of a, a neighborhood thing. They, they weren't making hip hop records until about 1979. That's that's old people music now, and yeah. the and the pioneers of hip hop are, are old folks, um, and so that's interesting to consider because it like rock and roll was this youthful vernacular, that that eventually had to confront the fact that it was a gray hair genre. You know, hip hop is is sort of coming up against the same thing, and I think there's a actually I don't know enough about this to, to comment on it, but I would suspect there's a generational divide. You know. Of the of the old lions uh, of hip hop and their relationship to the younger artists. Well, it's funny. I used to meet like my heroes as writers. I've met a bunch of them at this point, and I didn't know how fucking stupid this was to say to them until I had someone say it to me. And now, like, if someone said it to me, I would just smack them across the head. And I can't believe I wasn't smacked. You meet a, a writer you love, and you say something like, "I love your work, especially your early books." And I had someone say that to me, a young kid I met. It's like, I just, you know, I'm a big fan. I love your, your stuff, but especially your first two books. And I was just like, well, fuck you. <laughs> you know? But I've, I've, said it, I've said it to writers I can talk about. Um, you just don't even, you think you're being very complimentary, but all you're really doing is complimenting your own accidental placement in the universe, you know, because you really only love books written by people your age or older than you. It's very hard to really love a book that way, written by someone younger than you. At least it is for me. Interesting, yeah. I, I think one's relationship to books changes too. Like the books that I read from age 16 to 24 will probably never be as affecting yeah. again as, as what I read at that time. Yep. And then a, another point I'm thinking about, and I've talked to other travel writers, and you're sort of a polymath when it comes to writing, but travel is certainly... Until um, I had a kid. Figures in, figures in a lot of uh, your writing. I've talked to other travel writers that sometimes you can write many travel books, but there's one passion book as a travel writer, one when you're still raw and learning the ropes. 
Um, and I think myself as a travel writer that there's a certain jadedness that which isn't intentional. It's just I, I know the genre better. I know myself better. I'm not as open-hearted, which is not to say that I'm a completely a cranky old man. But I just it's more of a vocation now and less of a pilgrimage. Um, That's why I love Paul Theroux's continued insistence to write. He's definitely to write books the way he used to. I mean, he's definitely the same kind of traveler. But he's like really crankier. I think his travel books actually get more interesting as, as they go along because he, because he becomes less, en less enamored by his own youthful vigor. Hmm. And, he's, and he's more driven. Like that book about the South that he wrote, what the fuck was it called? Well, it's, Deep it's, South. it's his newest one. Yeah, it's his most recent well, one. Yeah, I mean, and that's a hard thing to say with through because he writes a book like every 10 months or something. Yeah, but that Deep South one was so vicious and so hmm. like. It was such an angry book about his own country that uh, I thought was just a bravura performance of, of, of elderly travel writer bile. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, yeah. it was genuinely fascinating to read someone that pissed off traveling. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder if, if there will be an equivalent of Paul Theroux because he's sort of one of a kind. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't like his crankiness, but um, he, he's very prolific. Um, his books seem so well researched and let's this is a generational thing let's talk about this like if i read a travel writer who has goofy racial politics or goofy ethical politics or like goes to a place that i love and hates it or gets facts wrong about a place that i know fairly well when did that become like capital crimes like isn't all that really matters is that it's fun and interesting to read Meaning, like, passing judgment on the lack of sensitivity or... or yes. Or, yeah. It's just, this has happened in my lifetime. Like, not, in, not only in my lifetime, in my, like, adult literary lifetime. There's travel writers that I love that people that I mention them in polite company. And they're like, oh, my God, how can you possibly like that writer? This, that, this, that. And I know this, that, and this, that about these writers. But to me, it's like, if you go through your life expecting moral purity from every artist that you love you're gonna have a very lonely existence aesthetically well here's an idea and I'll, you can agree or disagree but i think it might be a point of view problem is that um the travel writer must interpret place through his or her own point of view um and so it becomes very subjective and when it becomes subjective you lose that veneer of objectivity because i think a lot of these arguments are are from They've become post-colonial, you know, or or feminist. They're they're using sort of certain theoretical lenses to interpret things, and it's actually the point of view. It's the limitation of the author that creates the argument, so to speak. Yeah, none of which authors would even dispute. Correct. That. And and, and I mean, one thing about I, I guess travel writing is a very old genre, but it's also very it's. If you don't admit the frailty of point of view, then you know why leave home? Why read a book about another place? Because where is the point of view free travel narrative? I mean, that's even worse, right? Someone, <laughs> someone who doesn't—it's—it's—it's it's, yeah. it's the it's the British guy in 1850 writing in the third person, and it, it oozing with colonial condescension, right? You know, if you—I I think if you don't admit your personal point of view and your own limitations as a travel writer then you're going to be falling into i mean i mean you could almost take an app that makes that that, that like runs all of your observations through a post-colonial correctness filter but then in a hundred years what's going to be wrong about that filter you know what 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 biases are inherent in certain critical filters through which we watch through which we interpret literature right so maybe that's what i'm thinking one i think that cr criticism comes very quick these days um, because of social media, you know, but it used to be that certain um, post-colonial, to use one example, paradigms, you, you go to the journal, the literary journal that analyzes the, a certain book through a post-colonial lens, uh, and now you get those perspectives on social media just sort of as a cudgel. It's not a, an analysis, but it, yeah, it's to just... Sh to shit on someone's work, you have to actually had to put in the effort. You had to mail a letter to the person or sent a letter to the editor of the journal it appeared in. It's, just, it's, it's really taken out the middleman of shitting on other people's work that I think is, you know, we, we needed that middleman for a more well, civil... Well, it's very public, too. I think of all the shit that pisses me off 
and I don't do social media, but but like for me to really register my discomfort or displeasure with something, I still rely on the middlemen. And now, if I didn't well, have that, I would probably uh, I would work myself up into a lather a lot more frequently because I know that I could just instantly transmit how I'm feeling about any particular thing at that moment. Well, and, I wonder now, like you have a very scathing analysis of Kaplan, Robert right? D. Robert D. Kaplan. I had um, a, a fairly sardonic analysis of Eat, Pray, Love um, several years ago. I so, that. So, so we've both taken issue. We, we've both sort of done our critical pooping on other people's work. Um, so how does that compare? Like how, like, because I, I don't read, know specifically what I you... read every one of Robert Kaplan's books that he published until that point. Uh -huh. Every single one of them. I've taken copious notes. And, and, and the reason I bring this up, just to... to pull it out of this discussion is obviously you're noting a trend of, of sort of shitting on people's work. Like yeah, I don't mind shitting books. on people's work. It's just shitting on it. Um, because obviously you had a very informed um, perspective on Kaplan, but you, it was, what, 8,000 words or something. You know, my You Pray Love thing was 3,000 words. And so I'm wondering if it's the 140 characterness of the analysis. Like, what has changed? Because what led what's, us into this what's, conversation... What's changed is the amount of effort it takes to be a shit. Gotcha. Um, okay. If, and, uh -huh. and I think if you want to really take a shit on something, you should A, demonstrate that you actually know something about the topic at hand, that your shit is actually worth smelling, so to speak, and that spreading negativity around just for the sake of, you know, performative, for performative reasons is dishonest, cheapening, and it just lowers the discourse of everything. I am not at all opposed to taking a shit on things that genuinely offend you. And if my work were to ever rile someone up to the point where they felt capable of delivering a 5,000-word Jeremiah against why everything I stand for literarily or intellectually is wrong, I would be happy and in some ways relieved to read it. It's just the, the speed and shallowness with which opinions can be dispensed today that, I, that, that infuriates me. I, I think it, this has to do with bubble tribes, too, You know that, that it is performative, that um, the engagement is shallow because people... And to use a, a phrase that has recently become overused, virtue signaling. Do you know this? So, yeah, you, yeah. so you sort of have. I know a, what it is. Certainly, you have sort of a core social media belief system, and then you sort of you virtual you virtue signal. You sort of perform your disdain for certain things in a, in a shallow way as a way of community building, as much as analysis. You know that your that your withering scorn for topic A is a way of identifying with your ideological bubble online. And one reason why I bring this up is that I've. In the last nine months, I've really stopped reading Twitter because most of the people I follow are left of center. And it's like the, I'm no Trump fan, but reading about just sort of the meltdowns over Trump um, at 140 characters each um, in, a, in a very curated, day-by-day -day curated way is just emotionally exhausting. These people's time would be better spent writing informed essays about the things that pissed them off or signing up new people to vote. That's the question. I, I mean, I'm not politically sophisticated enough to even answer that. All I know is that my emotional relationship to Twitter has has ended because suddenly these these bubbles um, uh, of, of sort of signaling solidarity, yeah, at, 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 a, at a snap is has become exhausting and and it feels like counterproductive. And anyway, that that feels like sort of a parallel to what we're talking about in that. Um, our opinions sort of become fast and preformed, and I'm sure the deep dive is still happening. But it's as as writers, or as people who follow literature, maybe we're seeing that first. You know, we're seeing the veneer of the rage tweet before we're reading any any long and thoughtful takedowns of well, interesting I, literature. I resent it because it creates in the people who exhibit their anger. It, it gives them the false sense of accomplishment, and that's my biggest complaint with it. Not that you have, not that these people have these feelings. It's just that being able to vent them in a public forum makes them momentarily think that they've actually accomplished something, when they've not. I mean, a tweet has no more substance than the than the, than the air of flatulence. You know, it is literally digital flatulence. It accomplishes nothing. It is sub. Its preservation is subject to the whims of a corporation that that we know very little about the inner workings of, and. Books, magazines, however perishable these things are, 
however transient they are, and of course they are in the long run, I don't dispute that, but at least they're tangible objects. You know, they're things that, that exist in the world that can be touched and felt and thought about and analyzed and looked, upon, looked upon as objects that, that have a physical reality that meant something to someone. Transferring so much of our intellectual life into something as ephemeral as the internet, into something as ephemeral as Twitter and Facebook, both of which I am a conscientious objector from on these grounds alone. But have you seen it? Because you, you, you brought it up as something that's been happening recently, this sort of knee-jerk, um, depth-free criticism of oh, things like travel writing. And so where have, yeah, where, I, in a concrete world, where, where have you seen this? How I have you seen this I can't believe you wanted to stop my incredibly familiar diatribe against digital media, <laughs> um, social media. Now, what it happens from is I have several friends that are good friends who are constant targets of attack on Facebook uh, uh, and, okay. and, and stuff like that. And the caricatures of these people that I see get trotted out bear no resemblance to the actual human beings I know. And it's very dispiriting that I've become very more conscious of hating people than I used to be as a young man. There were so many writers that I just reflexively disliked and thought they, 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 they stood for everything bad in the world. And of course you meet these people and you realize they're human beings like anyone else, right? So um, there was something about that process that just filled me with despair. And whenever I tried to wade into a comment section where a, good, where a friend of mine, a Facebook friend of mine said something really mean and nasty because quoted person X said something in a newspaper and was quoted widely out of context, they'd say really mean thing about this person. And I'd chime in and say, hey, know the guy, great guy actually, don't blah, 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 blah. And then just watch the comments pile up, basically accusing you of being this person's presumably their shill racist, sexist shill, and in league with everything that they believe that they that that person stands for. That happened enough times where I was just like, "Fuck this place!" Yeah, this is it's fucking insanity. It's 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 just villagers with torches. And you were talking about the worst blind date ever. Is that something you can talk about <laughs> on the record? So uh, we were talking about performative outrage, uh, all of these sorts of things that fuel our social media present uh, feelings of authenticity with you about writing about ghetto boys, a black hip-hop band, me being a white guy who goes to non-white countries and travels in them and has the audacity to presume to say something meaningful about them upon return, etc., etc. And I told uh, Rolf, our host here, that I the worst blind date I'd ever had, and I'm not going to say the person's name because they're a travel writer that I was set up with, um, when I come back from living in Vietnam and this person had traveled a lot in Southeast Asia, and our mutual friend got us together for a blind date. So I lived in uh, the financial district at that point, and right on the edge of financial district Tribeca, there was a um, Vietnamese restaurant that was run by, um, operated by Japanese people. I forget what it was called, but it was good. It was really good. It was Vietnamese food with a sort of Japanese twist, I guess you'd say. So I meet this woman at this place. She comes in, I come in. We exchanged, you know, small talk. We both read each other's stuff. And she's like, well, you know, this isn't a real Vietnamese restaurant. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? She's like, well, the, you know, the Japanese people own it. And I was like, well, no, no, I know, but, you know, it's good. She's like, well, yeah, but it's not very authentic. Problem number one, authentic is a word for me that is always troublous when someone mentions it. So I got a little irritated, and I'm like, well, what do you mean by authentic? She's like, well, I mean, they're not Vietnamese. I'm like, yeah, but Vietnamese people aren't born learning how to cook Vietnamese food. You're telling me, like, a French person can't make lasagna, or, like, a Polish person can't learn how to make an American hamburger? It's like, the, we're not born innately with these food preparation <laughs> skills. They're about training and, 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 and cultural immersion. They're not about, like, who you're born. And she said, well, I just feel like it's insulting to take another culture's food and... and learn and I was like well okay, let's just, just back up so what you're telling me is you want a world in which everyone quote sticks to their own cuisine and doesn't do other stuff and so I just started digging and digging and digging and I, I basically said if you were to say this about any other form of human pursuit you would rightfully be accused of like of like Nazism you know um, and, and Jim Crowism like the so, racial purity of endeavor. No, that's exactly that's yeah. was exactly my point. Like, yeah. if you were to apply this logic to any other type of, of human endeavor, you would be rightfully called out as something pretty disturbing. So at that point, she just got up and walked out, and then I ate my delicious 
meal that I'd ordered from the Japanese people who had trained themselves to cook uh, very good Vietnamese, very good food in a, in a quote-unquote Vietnamese style. One could write a diatribe against authenticity, you know, uh, that takes, or against the idea of, of authenticity uh, as it's superimposed onto music, onto travel, onto food, onto so many other things. Um, it's almost like the idea of virtue signaling authenticity is almost like a status thing too. It's like, it's like insider knowledge somehow. So. so I just got back from Disneyland today and I have to say I did not find the food in their little Mexican villa to be very authentically Mexican. And I was very upset about that and I, I didn't appreciate the fact that they had fake Mexican musicians playing, well they were actually real Mexicans, but they were playing fake Mexican music and I didn't appreciate that. Well it was actually real Mexican music, but it was in a Disney context. Right. So therefore it was all bullshit. So is, this is facetious voice, Tom. Yes, this Tom is facetious right. voice, Tom. Yeah. It was a great music, it was a great food, but you know, I mean, come on. Save your outrage for the real, for the real. Well, there was a point at which that Disneyland and McDonald's became a metaphor. I pegged this to the 80s, but like a metaphor for the degradation of the purity of certain endeavors. Uh, I'll agree on McDonald's, but uh, I'm a big Disney, Disney fan. I love Disneyland and Disney World. Right. Same reason I love Vegas. They're just fucking weird. Oh man, I don't like Vegas. You don't like Vegas? Oh, I don't. What's wrong with you? But you've lived there. Did you yeah. like it before you lived there? I'd never been there before I lived there. Okay. So. See, I've been there about six or eight times, and I've never had fun. Well, it's because you haven't been there with the right person. Yeah. It, also, Vegas is a frustrating place because it's it's like almost designed to just fuck with you. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. Totally. Totally. I, I did do some reporting for the souvenir book, and that was interesting, but that was the reporting. I, you know, I was just talking to souvenir. Um, sellers and buyers at a convention uh, and then I then I ended up getting frustrated because the monorail leaves you half a mile from your destination you have to walk half a mile through a casino to get to where you want to go <laughs> the casinos are great stop right. and play some slots man it's fun oh god yeah no actually my very first travel story ever published in Salon the start of my career um, even before storming the beach which was my first big story was about Vegas, was about, was, it was called the Mystical High Church of Luck, or how I went to Vegas with $5 and lost $100. Jesus, I remember that story. Do you? I was an avid reader of Salon back then. I had no idea that was your story. April 1998, that was my first byline yeah. of, of notes. That was at the height. I started writing for Salon like maybe a year later, and I did like half a dozen pieces for that. that that's sort of how we know each other, I yeah, think. it's Cause, true. Because we both sort of, um, when Salon went away, we both ended up writing for World Hum. And, and, of course, uh, Salon. Yeah, porcelain. Do you read it anymore? No. Yeah. It just um, seems like a big far left circle jerk at this point. And it has been for a while. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's almost like, come on guys, respect yourselves, you know. That yeah. it's, click, it, it, it's like left-wing clickbait. It's the, bright, it's, it's, it's the bright bar to the left except less cunning and less... Uh... <laughs> yeah, well, I, I stopped reading it. Every once in a while I'll, I'll sort of find a backdoor link to a story that's interesting. It, one of my students in, uh, in Paris published a, a really interesting memoir, and but they don't even do those anymore. They don't do personal essays. Yeah. Um, yeah. Salon had a golden age for a while, they and did. then they 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 had a lot of really terrific pieces. Oh well. Disaster artist will probably be out in theaters around the time that I drop this podcast. Were you involved with the screenplay of that at all? No, other than just reading it and you know offering okay. my full-throated approval of it, which I thought was a great screenplay, and it turned out to be a great movie. So. And you co-wrote that book, mm -hmm. um, but it felt like a very Tom Bissley book, you know, just, just sort of the turns of phrase and, and, and the, the, almost sort of the criticism, like the, the film criticism involved in, in characterizing it Tommy. Is, it is a truly co-written book in that um, Greg and I roughly agreed on what the chapter structure would be, what the story structure would be, then I interviewed him. Um, I got the transcript from those interviews, and I sort of turned them into the first draft, which was very much my voice, me speaking through Greg on the page, gave those to Greg. Greg thoroughly rewrote those. He gave them back to me. I sort of futzed with it, gave it back to Greg. Greg rewrote it again. So, the so it first, wasn't a ghostwriting no, thing? No, 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 no. The first draft was mine, and, gotcha. and I think Greg would accede to this. Like, I put the initial layer of paint down on, on the wood. After that, it is... Very collaborative? Very collaborative. And like the last draft, he and I were sitting across a desk from each other, like eyeball to eyeball, going through line by line, reading it to each other, 
He, you know, and the funny thing about this is Greg is a you know beautiful man. When I say beautiful, I don't mean he's a he's a lovely human being. I mean he's like a good, very handsome guy. And so you know you get a lot of, I think people assume that former male model, you know this that. Greg is sharp as hell. And when we were working on this book, uh, during the you know stages when we were going back and forth, Greg would show up reading like Tobias Wolf's This Boy's Life, and I'd be like. Oh, that's that's amazing. He's like, oh, I just want to see what other memoirs do it. Then he'd come back and he'd be reading some other seminal memoir, Frank Conroy's Stop Time or something. And I'm like, holy shit, you're really getting into this. And so then, you know, when we're really making the tough decisions about cutting and moving stuff, he'd be like, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I think we stopped this chapter too late. And I want to, you know, I look, went back and looked at the transcript, and we talked about a lot of shit after this, and I want to try to figure out a way to hmm. make that. And I'd be like, Greg, I've been doing this a long time. I've written a lot of books. Just trust me on this. And he'd be like, no, no, I think we should do this. And I have to tell you, we had like a dozen of those arguments. Ten out of the 12 times we had those arguments, he was right. And I fought him and I said, you're wrong. You're going to regret this. And then I wound up, we wound up working on what he wanted to do. And only like two of those 12 dozen times at the end did, did my initial reaction prove right. So well, that, bo that book is a... It is a labor of love, and it was really written, you know, by, by both of us. But, you know, what you're saying, the Tom Bissell-ness of it, was, is, is, is an after effect of the fact that, right. you know, I threw down the first, the first part of it. Well, the, I mean, there's these sort of aphoristic insights that I attributed to you, but maybe there's not yet a word for, like, prematurely passing judgment on a handsome man. <laughs> but, but, no, um, no, I mean, it's, it's some of the sentences... Uh, like Greg was the first guy, you know, when we were talking about what Tommy looked like in the very beginning of the book, we were, he was describing him and we were in the transcript, we were just throwing things back. Um, I was like an escaped Muppet and he was, you know, and I was saying something, he said the drummer from Rat and I remember laughing so hard. And so when someone had said to me like drummer from Rat, that had to be yours. And I'm like, no, no, that was actually Greg's and I have the like the, 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 uh, That's funny. the proof uh, in the transcript. Are, are you involved with the movie at all, or just uh, an observer? Um, I mean, no. I mean, just an observer. Um, you know. Do you, d does the co-writer of the book, which is made into a movie, get invited to the premiere? Or? Oh yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, James uh, Franco and I have become, uh, I don't know, fairly fairly tight since all this went down, and and uh, I like him a lot, and. Uh, we may work on something else someday together. Oh, that's so, cool. Um, Did you know him before this project? No, he reviewed Extra Lives. Okay. Uh, which is crazy that he reviewed it for Vice because he okay. has a book review. And I remember like James Franco reviewing your book is like a very weird thing. You're like, holy shit. Yeah. So then Disaster Artist comes out and I now know the story of how he got it, which was they were doing the interview. Someone gave it to Seth Rogen and Seth gave it to James saying, you got to read this. And James was like, oh, the guy wrote that video game book I liked. And he read it and he just like fucking flipped for it. And so when I found out, James, and then James wrote a review of The Disaster Artist, I think is, a, is an audition to us that I really get this book. Interesting. Who do you write for? Uh, Vice. Also for Vice. So shortly after that review came out, we got word that he was interested in, in buying the, the rights for it. And so, um, you know, I was very predisposed. He's given my books two very positive reviews. <laughs> I was just yeah. predisposed to be like, dude, whatever you want. But that's where Greg and Tommy had to like... Uh, I had nothing to do with any of the movie stuff. It's Greg's book more than mine. It's Greg's life story. It's Tommy's life that they're putting on screen. So I, you know, the movie, um, I, you know, it's all Greg and Tommy, the, 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 all the big decisions. So, do you think? How do you think Tommy's going to come out of this? I think Tommy was paid the compliment of being portrayed as a really compelling complicated human being by one of the best young actors in the world and if Tommy can't see that for the gift that it is then God help him but I know he does see that for the gift that it is I mean Tommy's a weird dude no one would dispute this um, <laughs> yeah and and I think that this one nice thing about the book the disaster artist is that in a very human way it underscores that in a very super vivid and laugh out loud at times way I don't usually laugh out loud when I'm reading alone, but I laughed out loud at times just hearing these characteristics of how Tommy walks through the world. That makes me very happy. Or, or, or even just his passcode and the fact that he, he had one, two, three, he four. Had to, <laughs> he had to write down one, two, three, four. But, but actually, part of my question was it was the psychic part of Tommy. I mean, there's how he's portrayed, but there's a certain amount of 
even higher celebrity that's going to come out of this, I would, I would presume. And he had a weird relationship with, I mean, maybe the movie wasn't completely about celebrity, but it was also about creating a world in which he could have friends that he wanted to have, you know. And, and I think an interesting thing that Greg said in the book, this is a beautiful child. Tom's child has finally joined us. This is my daughter, and she's, Mina. she's very generous, and she just gave me a she little yellow bird. She gave him a duck. Um, a bird. But actually, when, when Greg was maybe 10 years older than, than your daughter, Nina? Mina. Mina, sorry. Uh, he, he wrote Home Alone 2. He did. He wrote the original script for Home Alone 2. Which is a total, <laughs> yeah. which feels like something I would do. Like, <laughs> did you ever, and, and actually the way it was characterized in the book is that he was so, it's like, well, I guess I'm going to have to drop out of eighth grade because I'm going to be on the set. I'll right? be on the set. I'll be in Orlando filming uh, Home Alone 2. And so, uh, I mean, did you have that sort of swagger when you were at that, that age? No. Okay. Somehow I did. And, <laughs> and it was an insecure swagger, but it was just sort of a quiet, like, I think I just did, I have this brilliant idea. You know, I should prepare for what comes next. Mina, do you have that kind of swagger as a young child? Do you have swagger? Can you show us swagger? Can you? Sh um, I have a little house. You do have a little house. Okay. Okay, this is not great podcast material, so we're going to have to ask you to go back inside. If it was a video, Tom has an adorable <laughs> child. It's just like uh, incredibly adorable. She's very cute. That's all. Um, that's but all it's not a video mom. podcast. I mean, we, she, should, she could be cast in, like, she's like a, you could ruin her life by casting her as a child. And actor. that's exactly why we never would. Right. We've had, uh, we have uh, some friends who are child, because Trisha's an actor, and, and uh, we have, you know, friends who are actors now who began as child actors and every single one of us is whatever you do never oh Mina what are you gonna give Rolf is that your amulet it's purple we're this is like podcast magic right now is what we're doing <laughs> the most unvisual medium a child reaching out gently to give uh, the podcast host something ineffable that the audience can't see but only we will know it's true important magic and they're on the edge of their seats. Edge of their seats. Thinking, what is it? What does the purple amulet do? So uh, we talked about happiness and contentment, and I will tell you a uh, stable relationship and this little human being is one thing that's kept me um, creatively explosive because uh, there's a component of it. Well, this is for real now. It's not just me, as Martin Amos says, moving a sock across the room. Um, like whatever is going on up in my head when I'm extracting my own brain for, for creative material, there's like a little tiny group of humans that are depending on me to do it. So it cuts a lot of the neurosis out of the process, you know. Well, the funny thing is that, yeah, uh, it, was, it was such a vocational question, but that seems now, that seems like another obvious answer. Yes, of course, of, of course, it's, it, it's balanced. Like, that, that your happiness is not just about your next project, but about a full life, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it makes you like less neurotic, more patient. Um, like the the two years after she was born, she's like three and a quarter now. Um, I wrote more then than I think I ever had. I had these periods like living in Vegas, living in Estonia, where I had literally nothing to do. I'd wake up every morning with nothing to do but write. How many mm. hours a day did I wind up writing? <sighs> two? Yeah. Three, if I was lucky? Now, when I wake up in the morning, I know that I have to stop at four because her mom has to go to the theater to start rehearsing and then the kid is mine. So at four, I have to start getting dinner ready. I have to start getting all this other stuff ready. I have to start laying down all the groundwork for bedtime. So I know from when I get up until 3, 3.30, uh, you know, that's where all of it stops. And it just wonderfully concentrates your concentration. You're like, holy shit, I actually have to like, if I'm not producing during this time, like uh, I'm not making money, I'm not getting stuff done. So it, like, I cannot stress enough how focusing having a kid is on, uh, on, on writing. So it's been good for you creatively and professionally? I wouldn't say good because it's bad in a lot of other ways because you know, you have less time objectively, so you're always feeling the loss of this phantom time that you didn't even use well the last time. I'm so guilty of that. But to my shame. Yeah, no, to my shame too. But it's really good in the sense that um, 
it just makes you into a more human human you know mm. it makes you into a more and i'm not saying this to a noble parenthood as a rule right. nothing annoys me more than parents who are like it's impossible to have a meaningful life if you don't have kids those right. people drive me okay excuse me how are you mina i was going to yell at her for comic effect on the podcast and right. then i realized that could come off really bad, and I'd be humiliating right. my kid for well, no purpose. Mina, Mina just adorably came up with a drawing of a purple spider, and she, she did. held the spider drawing in front of her face. And said, boo. And said, boo. <laughs> and so, <laughs> it was pretty cute. Here, we're going to have the last of this wine. Well, we're going to finish off the wine. Um, Day has ended. It's cooled off. It was like another one of those 100-degree days here yeah, in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's really Angeles. beautiful right now. And it's a nice, nice time of day. But creatively, I think, I, you know, I don't write sentences the way I used to. I don't think about prose the same way I used to. I have a, shall we say, probably more workmanlike approach to writing prose these days. I still try to do a very good job, but I don't view it as my personal aesthetic responsibility to reinvent the English language with everything that I write. And I gotta say this, Writing Disaster Artist was the first book that I'd ever written where I wasn't sweating every sentence. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's probably sentence for sentence the most enjoyable book of mine to read hmm. that there's something to be said for knowing when to hold them and knowing when to fold them as kenny rogers once said <laughs> okay. to just having a more realistic appraisal of people's aesthetic patience for for mm. for beautiful prose yeah that's an interesting like writer specific um consideration the, the bellatristic act of creating beautiful writing versus telling a story and of course you had such a great topic like if you couldn't invent tommy you know he's, he's the greatest character anyone's ever invented and, and he's real and that's why there's something novelistic about the the book version of the disaster artist and i'm i'm, I'm not a very good shameful plug guy but for those of you who watch the movie read the book because it's just there's something just delightful and readable and page turnable about about um what Tom and Greg did with that. Yeah, I can, you know, it's more Greg's book than mine, so I feel like I can brag that book up all I want because yeah. I was, you know, part of it, but it's not entirely my book. It's a wonderfully fun book, mm. and, and the movie is great, and it's a Hollywood story unlike any that I know of. It's a Hollywood story about the loser, not about the sociopathic loser and the player who kills the, the, the producer, not about, like, the has-been in Sunset Boulevard, it's about a totally unsung kind of Hollywood loser, which is the person who comes out here, swings, misses, and by all evidence should just fade into obscurity and go back to wherever, whatever hole they crawled out of. But it actually takes that person's dreams seriously. And that's the kind of Hollywood story that hmm. I can't really think of another example of. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful, cookie well, story. Well, I think Hollywood has a way of disappearing up its own asshole sometimes you know yeah. of, of, of yeah. um glamorizing just little subsets of what it already is when in fact there's this whole shadow culture i mean one of the people i interviewed was uh, the producer of sharknado oh um, man yeah 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 who i wrote a screenplay for in 95 and so i was part of that shadow i didn't become a screenwriter you know i, I went oh on oh my god you wrote a screenplay well the, their asylum right the asylum, asylum yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and I've, so I've had this strange relationship with them because I wrote about them for the New York Times Magazine in 2007. Amazing piece. Thank Amazing you. piece. Thank you. You I, probably read the Believer version, which was more in depth. Or did you read? Or did you read the New York? I think the, I probably read them both. Okay. But, um, yeah. Well, thank you. I've never complimented you on that piece, but that's okay. that's an amazing piece. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the kind of story that is sort of, sort of undertold, and it's a part. It encompasses way more people than Hollywood itself, because you know the burnout star or i mean there's just so many people who come in with dreams and like me right a, a really really bad pulp fiction write uh knockoff i was probably one of 30,000 white males <laughs> writing a bad pulp fiction <laughs> knockoff in in 2000 or in 1995 and then just going on with their lives and learning yeah, some yeah. lessons i learned a lot about narrative structure from a, writing bad screenplays and then there's the, the sharknado guys who are, are probably not weird enough to get their own tim burton or james franco movie but um and one thing he talked about was just like the moment he gave up on being an indie auteur and realizing that making goofy monster movies that were sort of driven by the, the metrics of blockbuster video was going to be his thing. And then eventually Sharknado blessed him with wider fame and, and, and sort of Twitter celebrity. But uh, that's, that it, I, I love the, ho the, the Hollywoodness of that because that story 
which I think is the charm of a disaster artist is that it opens that tent. It just it brings some more people into the tent of the classic Hollywood story. Um, anyhow, we probably don't need to have like a three-hour podcast. Probably so, not. Uh, unless there's uh, some monkey. Let's, oh, let's, you need to close play some out with banjo. some banjo music. Let's close. It. So I haven't well, played anything. I haven't warmed up. But as a preface, because the topic of banjo came out of heavy metal, and so please, on behalf of my audience, explain how bluegrass and thrash metal share something narratively. Um, what they share is it's an incredibly virtuosic music played by people who are culturally viewed as retarded, and I don't mean that in the insulting like retard sense, I mean it in the literal sense of the word. They are retarded. Limited. Limited. Yeah. Um, and it's this music that demands a kind of musical competence that is awe-inspiring, that pays back that competence with... Um, that, that oh, Pays back is not the word I'm looking for. There's just a weird disconnect between... It marries the competence? Yeah, with... yeah. It marries the competence to a kind of music that is sort of uh, venal. Like Paganini, you know, the one maybe the most virtuosic musician who ever existed was in fact, you know, a scum, scoundrel, terrible human being who played this incredibly fast, technically skillful uh, violin. Uh, he played in this style that was impossible to replicate, but he himself was like a base human being. And I feel like Earl Scruggs, Carrie King, Kirk Hammett, you know, that these people have carried this tradition of technical virtuosity and, and cultural disrepute. Slash lyrical um, unsophistication? Yeah, well, you know, Paganini didn't have any lyrics and most bluegrass songs don't either, but... Um, um, okay, and I'm gonna start getting real. Um, This has been the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast. You're listening to Tom Bissell playing banjo on his balcony in Laurel Canyon. Not bad considering he didn't have a chance to warm up and he'd just gotten off of two hours of talking to me and he'd had a few glasses of wine. Uh, The song he's playing is called Little Rabbit. For more about everything that was mentioned in this interview, check out the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. This episode was produced by Justin Glow with research support from Jan Futterman. The manjo music is by Tom Bissell, of course, and the intro music is by my nephew, Cedar Van Tassel. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast. Thank you, Tom Bissell. Was there a name of that song? Uh, It's called Little Rabbit. Should I disparage you for not being from Appalachia and hence inauthentic? <laughs> <laughs> uh...